Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Last week we did verses 1 through 16. We're going to finish up Genesis 4 today. And uh, it may in some ways seem a sort of a strange text. I don't know. So I was reading it and thinking about it. It was kind of like, wow. What am I going to say about this? But God is faithful. Verse 17. Cain lay with his wife. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mehuhael, and Mehuhael was the father of uh, Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adnah and Zillah, listen to me. Wise of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten us by the power of your Spirit as we look at your Word this morning. Enable us to understand and to apply a passage that might seem unimportant, that might seem insignificant, that might seem strange and unconnected. But you have written this for a good cause, and so we ask that you would help us to understand your redemptive purposes. And we ask this in the name of the living word, Jesus, who is our hope and our salvation. Amen. Those books are there for a reason. There have been a bevy of books on the topic of culture. Some of them good, some of them eh, maybe not so good. This is just the representation from my library alone. And so we have, uh, I don't know if any of you heard of any of these, Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction, a rather thick book. Francis Schaeffer, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. I'm sure most of you heard of him, right? Uh, Niebuhr, Christ and Culture. D.A. Carson, Christ and Culture. Revisited. Augustine, the city of God. The edited version, mind you. He was busy that. He, he didn't watch TV. Uh, Stephen Carter, the culture of disbelief. Ken Myers, all God's children in blue suede shoes, Christians in popular culture. Redeeming pop culture by T.M. Moore. And The Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America by James Hunter. 
no shortage of books are written on this topic of culture, from trying to wrestle with it from a Christian perspective, and we do struggle with how to look at culture, and I think that's a lot of what this text is about. Because it talks about culture, really, in a lot of ways, and how it arose, and how it is tainted, and what's going on with culture. The big idea this morning is that Jesus changes cultures by changing hearts. And that's, you're not gonna see that obviously and explicitly from this text, so we're gonna have to work at this, so please be patient with me. And, but the first thing is very clear from this text, and that is that corrupt hearts create corrupt culture. We cannot avoid that as we look at this particular text. It starts with Cain. And of course, Cain was a fugitive. He had been banished from the face of God precisely because he had killed his brother, which is referenced to in this text. Okay? So he is not only not in Eden, but he is sent even farther east from Eden, and he's told that he's going to be a wanderer. But something happens. You know, that Cain, he wasn't the most obedient guy in the first place, so what does he do? He settles someplace. And what he does is he builds a city. And now, initially we might hear that he builds a city, and we might think of something like Tucson or a smaller city like Winter Haven. And we might think, where did all those people come from? And the idea here is more that there, it's a walled development. It's not, you know, it's not like we're thinking New York City here. Okay? But what it is, is he's so afraid for his life that his, he, that, that God or someone will come and will kill him that the, the walls of his home are not enough. And so his, he and his extended family now live in basically a stockade. Their, their homes are surrounded by a wall to keep those who might avenge the death of Abel out. That's all that's going on here. But it, it is there within that city that he creates with his extended family that culture, as we tend to think of it, begins to emerge. Separated from God, Cain's line, his children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, become increasingly distorted by sin. And we get to this guy, Lamech. And, you know, that's one of the beautiful things. When, when a genealogy stops and talks about somebody, kind of important. Lamech is pretty important because it, it breaks the, the, the routine, it breaks the pattern that is there. And there are two very important things about Lamech. The first is that Lamech distorts God's intention for marriage by taking two wives. How's that for the introduction to Lamech? There it is. Starts right off. Lamech married two women. The attack on marriage, which is a creation ordinance, which is something that, that God put in place the very beginning with Adam and Eve, has been under attack since almost time began, since shortly after the fall. And so when we think about marriage being under attack in various ways in our day and our culture, this is not a new thing. This has been going on since the days of Lamech. It has been under attack through many kinds of things, through adultery, through today the idea, this concept, which is strange to me, of, of open marriage. It, it is under attack through the way people live together before they get married. Uh, it is under, under attack even with the concept of a no-fault divorce. 
These are many ways in which our particular culture distorts marriage, in which the way in which sin distorts God's creation called marriage. Those, those are how we do it. There aren't many polygamists in our country. Okay, I guess if we go a little bit north in parts of Arizona and uh, Utah, we'll find some. Uh, but they're usually frowned upon. Okay, um, So polygamy is not normally how we understand the distortions of marriage, although, hey, that may come again someday. So, so he takes two wives and distorts God's intention for marriage. And the reality of what's going on here, let's think for a moment. What what does the evil one do? He hates God, right? That's the object of his hatred. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he cannot hurt God, right? Can God be killed? Can he even be maimed? Can it be damaged? But what he can do is he can mar the image of God, people. And he can, he particularly tends to work in those things that most reveal the image of God. Those things that are meant to reflect who God is. And we talked, when we talked about marriage, we talked about how it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And so what do you think Satan wants to go after? Marriage. He wants to distort and corrupt marriage. We talked a bit about how we are made in God's image to be workers. What do you think he also wants to go after? Work. How we work and what work does to us. And so we don't only, in addition to experiencing the curse that God has placed, making our toil more difficult because of our rebellion, but we also see that Satan tries to make it into an idol for some people. Or there's the people who make avoiding work (laughs) into their main preoccupation. Okay, so, and then we, we get to the reality of sex as, you know, part of marriage, and we see how that is again, what part of what, how he distorts the image of God and tries to destroy it. Okay? And so it makes sense when we start to, when we step back and think, why does he go after certain things? It's precisely because the image of God is most closely re- revealed in us in that way. And that's what he wants to stop. That's what he wants to destroy. And so the first thing besides murder, which is an attack on the image of God, okay, is, boom, marriage. Satan hates everything that points to God in the gospel, and so he distorts these things. But Lamech was not only known for polygamy. For we see something else. Lamech also boasted about his violent sin in song or poetry. And so what we see arising with Lamech is, in addition to the corruption of marriage that takes place, he's a murderer. Again, that whole idea of destroying the image of God through murder. And his is a little different. This man wounded him. And so he sings the song about his sin to his wives. Wives, do you like it when your husband sings you songs? Is this the kind of song you want to hear from your hubby? Wouldn't that be great? Honey, this morning I went and killed a man. 
okay? It's just like, what is this guy doing? He's boasting about killing a man who merely hurt him. His actions were not just because they exceeded what had been done to him. Okay? That's sort of like in certain subcultures, and you see this all the time. If, if you disrespect somebody, okay, if you're in the wrong part of the neighborhood and you disrespect somebody, you can get shot. Okay? There's a great imbalance between the, the real or perceived offense and the punishment for that offense. That's what's going on here. He has been hurt, he has been wounded, and, and that is a real offense, and yet his reaction and response to that greatly exceeds the original offense, and so his violence is not just, it is wicked. This is not a man who is protecting himself, this is a man who is a vigilante and is creating injustice. But not only that, he sings a song about it. There's still songs about violence. And different subcultures will have their different songs. If, you know, like when I was younger, death metal. I was never a death metal guy. But, you know, suburban white people into death metal. So, you don't have to be from a poor background for there to be an expression of death as a good thing in the culture, in the music of a particular culture. And so what we see here is that sexual sin and violence are beginning to spiral out of control, which is going to culminate in the flood. Next week, I believe, we're looking at the flood. And so what we see is that the powerful begin to dominate those who are relatively weak. The reality is, is that culture is not the problem. The culture is a symptom. It's a manifestation. The corrupt culture reveals that the hearts are corrupt. Jesus says that it is out of the heart that springs all of these sins. And that is what's going on here. It is out of the heart that Lamech's sins spring forth, and he just happens to be singing a song about them. It is the corrupt culture that reveals the corrupt heart. He is, he's boasting about his sin. He's not lamenting his sin. Okay? Art can talk about sin a lot, and actually all realistic art will have something to do with sin. Every good story has something to do with sin. It's a question of whether or not it boasts about sin or laments sin. One night, eons and eons ago, my roommate came home with two movies that were <laughs> Academy Award winning movies. And so we watched both of them the same night. And the first one was Leaving Las Vegas. And I walked out. I went to my room. Because it was nihilistic in that there was no hope in this movie. It was, I'm going to die. So I guess I'll go to Las Vegas and drink myself to death because I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, that's about it. That's the movie. We then watched Fargo. Now, some of you might initially go, man, isn't there a lot of profanity and violence in that movie? Yes, as with many uh, Coen Brothers films, there was. 
But at the end of the movie, something very different happens, which puts it in a very different perspective. At the end of the movie, the one remaining killer is in the back seat, having been wounded by the pregnant police officer who brought him in. I love it, the weakness destroying the, po- the proud and the powerful. And uh, she says to him, was it worth it? Was it worth all those people dying just for a little bit of money? And so even the Cohen brothers somehow can see something is, is wrong with, with what was going on through their story. They're trying to communicate something through the story. It's not boasting in violence, but is in fact lamenting violence. Just as scripture is honest about sin, but laments it. And so as a result, as we kind of look at Lamech, we see that we must abandon some elements of culture. That there are, there are things that we'll find in every culture that must be abandoned. And in, like, his sexual immorality, we, we have, we need to turn from that. His, his, his unjust violence is something that we need to, excuse me, to turn away from. His, you know, greed, the exploitation of the weak, those are things that we, though we may be present in a culture, we should turn away from as Christians. And so the culture people make reflects the condition of their hearts, but here's some Slightly good news. God enriches civilizations through common grace. What this passage is also about is about is the reality of common grace. And when we say common grace, it's not saving grace. It doesn't mean that the, per, the people who receive this have received salvation from God. But what it means is it's something that is common to people irrespective of their relationship to God. Meaning that God sends the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. That God sends, lets the sun shine upon the righteous and on the unrighteous. That sometimes bad people have really good jobs. It means that sometimes bad people can do very good things. And so what we see here, as, it, as we go through the line that comes through Lamech, we see a couple things. It starts to mention his kids, and we see that Jabal, his family, was the first, were the first nomads, basically, who raised livestock. And at first you might be thinking, so? Well, what was Abraham? A wanderer who raised livestock. And now, obviously, when we get to the flood, we're going to see that all of the, you know, the descendants of, of uh, Jabal are going to die in the flood. So it's not like Abraham was from that line. But we see that, that what he's doing is not wrong. Okay. That's a that's a that's an honest way to make a living. We see that Jubal's family, they were musical and they made various instruments. Well, what a great gift. I mean, I was at Music City this week. That's what they call Nashville. And it was almost impossible to escape music in Music City. I guess that's why it's its name. I mean, I I think almost every restaurant we went to, there was music. I mean, not like, you know, over the sound system, but, you know, live music. Even in the airport, we're sitting in this uh, little restaurant waiting, you know, interminably for our flight to leave, uh, my friend and I. And, uh, you know, we're trying to talk to our wives on the phone, and we can't because some guy's strumming this guitar and singing country-western songs, and I'm not a country-western song, so Music City is not the music of peace for me. Uh, it may be different for you, and that's okay. Um, but I was really excited when we were sitting in the airport at a different place, and there was a jazz band going. 
That made my way easier. Um, but nonetheless, music arises from this sinful guy and his family. And it's not seen to be as a bad thing, necessarily. We see another son, Tubal-Cain, who forged bronze and iron for tools, weapons. When we get to Noah, how do you think he built an ark? Don't you think he used some of the tools of bronze and iron necessary to make the ark? And so the salvation of Noah and his family arises out of the culture that is created by these sinful people. It's common grace. And so we see that civilization blossoms despite their rejection of God as the greatest good. If we look at this in terms of what the the promise of God in Genesis 3, the the seed of the serpent and the, the seed of the woman, this is the seed of the serpent. Eve had hoped this was going to be the seed of the woman, but it turned out not because of what we saw Cain do to his brother Abel. This is essentially the, the, the seed of sinful man. This is the city of man in his sin and corruption, and yet good things arise from it, despite them, precisely because God is at work. Precisely because we are made in God's image, we create things that are good. Even though our hearts are tainted by sin. We create things that are good. And so that's why I say, you know, bad people can do good things. You know, Steve Jobs, great computer. I don't think he's a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to do things that benefit society, that provide for the, the common goodness or well-being of society or culture. But what we do find, again, is that God creates, but Satan tends to corrupt. And so the good things that are you, that are produced by culture are often twisted and turned. And, and so we think of music, and we think of what Lamech did. His song is a corruption of music because it boasts about sin. Okay, We can see how something good like the Internet can be used for very evil purposes, corrupted by people for things. We think of guns, and I don't know where all of you stand on guns, but, but guns are not evil. But some people use them to do evil. Okay? Um, you know, and that's where the whole nation is right now with this whole Supreme Court ruling that just took place. You know, the mayor of Chicago is, is in a tizzy because he can't quite imagine that honorable people might want to own guns to defend themselves. No, only criminals want guns. No. Every good thing that is given is corrupted, is twisted, and used for evil, or can be. But we see that godly people benefit from these innovations. Where would David be if he didn't have a harp? David played a harp. He played it before Saul. He, he wrote numerous songs that we now sing and we read and we meditate upon in Scripture. Not just that, but we think also of farmers. Where would a farmer be without a plow? How do you get a plow? You forge things. Okay, so godly people benefit from these common grace innovations. So we find that when we think about culture, we tend to just think about bad things. But what culture really is, is it's about how we live. Culture is about how we work. It's about how we eat, how we play. 
And so, yeah, there are things we must abandon about any particular culture in which we live, but there are also things that we embrace or we adopt. Right? It'd be hard to live in Tucson without adopting to Tex-Mex food. That's not Tex-Mex, but, you know, Southwest food with lots of red and green chilies, right? You don't want to eat like you're still in Ireland, do you? You adapt to the food of the culture. Uh, you, you adapt to the dress of the culture, okay, within reason, within modesty. But like last night, I bought tropic weight clothes because, man, it's hot out there in the summer, and I don't want to wear jeans all the time. <laughs> okay, I wore, I wore pants that I can wear and not feel like I'm going to roast in the summertime. Common grace. We can take advantage of that. We can enjoy that. We can adopt some of its elements. And so God graciously gives good gifts even to people groups who don't know him. That's how kind he is. Third, last part of this, is that the gospel cleanses hearts to create redemptive culture. This this chapter doesn't end with Lamech and his sons. It kind of does a, oh yeah, by the way, let's go back here. Adam and Eve have another son. And his name is Seth. And I, th- I think there is a profound difference between what she said in naming Cain and what she says in naming Seth. There's a, more, there's a greater humility here. There's a greater gratitude here. For the Lord has granted her another son to replace the one that was lost by the sin of Cain. Kind of like Hosea. No, was it Amos? One of the minor prophets. What the locusts have eaten, God will restore. Her son stole her other son, and yet God restored and granted another child by the name of Seth. And things are very different. This line seems to be of of greater importance than the line that we find coming from Cain. I was sitting... You know, on the airport, on the airport, on the airplane to Minneapolis, uh, you know, third, uh, ugh, Monday morning. And it was like, whoa, wait a minute. There are no ages given in the line of Cain. In the line of Seth, we see, you know, Adam was so old when he had Seth and he lived so many more years after it. And we see that pattern all the way through the line of Seth. You don't know how old anybody was in the line of Cain. So not only is there the line of Cain about to be eliminated in Genesis chapter 7, but we see that there's also a de-emphasis taking place. There's something a little different going on that, that should draw our attention. Okay? Not only that, but we see this other thing where under... Under the line of Lamech, we see um, creation and innovation. What we find here is Seth has a son, and his name is Enosh. And what Enosh most likely means is weakness. What a contrast to Cain and his line, which seemed to be about a power, using your own power to protect yourself. Here we have Enosh in his weakness, and it is then that people began to call on the name of the Lord. 
Do you think that's incidental? I don't think it is. Jesse the Body Ventura, who also known as the former governor of Minnesota, uh, made a comment uh, while he was governor of Minnesota. Uh, remember, this is a guy who used to be a U.S. SEAL. And so his comment about Christianity was that it's a crutch for the weak. And there were some people who took incredible offense at this. And I go, yeah? Why are we afraid of weakness? Is that a biblical thing to be afraid of weakness? What about Paul in 2 Corinthians? He talks about how he boasts in his weakness. He's not afraid of his weakness. He's not hiding in a corner and pretending it doesn't exist and just kind of, no, I'm pretty good. He boasts about his weakness. before Because he realized, after God refused to take away one particular weakness, that God makes his power perfect in our weakness. And I was having a discussion with a, uh, a gentleman in Florida who uh, listened to a lot of Ken Hagen and was into the, the whole word faith thing and, you know, that we should be healed as Christians here and now, not, you know, when Jesus returns and all that kind of stuff. And eventually I brought the conversation back here. I said, his strength is made perfect in weakness. That seems to undermine this idea that we're all going to be fit and strong and healthy because we believe in Jesus. Not only that, but how did Jesus save? Did he flex his muscles, pick up a sword, and kill the, the you know, all the Romans? He was a victim of violence, weakness. Now, when Jesus returns, it's going to be a completely different story. Okay? But in his saving act for his people, he's a lamb led to the slaughter. Weakness. Apart from weakness and our acknowledgement of weakness, we don't call upon the Lord. Because we think we got it together enough to be able to fix it. And what the scripture says is, um, sorry. You don't. And it's not just the sin thing. It's just about everything. We're weak people. First Corinthians chapter 1, he's talking about, you know, not many of you were. And basically he's saying, you are not rich, you are not powerful, you are not influential, you are weak. Yet God chose you. And brought you to himself. So we need not fear this weakness. This kind of plays out even more. Um, and yet I think, I'll get there, but one thing about GA that disturbed me. And this was not General Assembly, it was some individuals in General Assembly. One of the aspects of the strategic plan was the recognition that, you know, we need to talk, we're not alone in this deal. There are, there are other bodies that are Christian, and we need to talk with them, and we can learn from them. And I heard some men saying, we don't need them. And I thought of the arrogance. It's like, we're the PCA. We have it all together. We don't need anybody's help. I'm like, can the ear say to the foot, I don't need you? 
weakness. And when we, don't, when we don't recognize our weakness and call upon the name of the Lord, what we do is we end up being destructive like Lamech. That's what happens. So, okay, up my soapbox a little bit there. Um, we see that these two parallel lines are, are emerging. Yeah, the, the line of Cain and particularly Lamech and then the line of Seth. And it's interesting that there are two people with the same names in both lines, Enoch and Lamech. Why don't we go a little bit into uh, chapter 5. Let's see. Now I'll start in verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. Aren't you glad you don't have to live 912 years in this fallen world? I am. Uh, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Canaan, and after uh, he became the father of Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years when he died. Uh, I'm sorry, why don't we bump down? There we go, 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years, which at first looks insignificant, I mean, looks uh, rather small compared to the 600 and more years. But we see that Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. He did not experience judgment. The shortness of his life is not because of the judgment of God, but because of his closeness with God, and God took him away. He did not experience death. He's just like Elijah, who later on, he never tasted death. And when you think about the culture that was emerging around him and the violence and everything else that was going on, what an incredible mercy of God for him to take his friend Enoch young. Um, And so we see two Enochs. The, The one on Lamech's side, he hid with his fugitive father in a city. But the other one walked with God, his friend. Very different. Okay, And then we see another one, Lamech. Go to the end of chapter uh, 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. And he said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by, by the ground the Lord has cursed. The first Lamech boasted of his sin. The second Lamech longed for God to comfort his people. The name of his son was not about the greatness of himself or what his son would accomplish. It was about what God would accomplish. And so instead of it pointing to his own power, he looks to God. 
Again, that idea of weakness. He couldn't undo the curse, but he looks to God who will undo the curse. Comfort. One relied on strength to destroy, and the other upon God to show mercy. So what are we to make of this? I think one thing we can make of this is that godliness trumps creativity. Because you notice there's no creativity that's mentioned in this line. There's no great inventions that arose. And not that they didn't happen, but they're just not mentioned. What is mentioned is faithfulness. Our culture here in America tends to prize creativity and despise godliness. Now, some Christians think that the answer is to prize godliness and despise creativity. That is not the answer. The church can embrace both godliness and creativity, I believe, precisely because we're made in the image of God. That means we're made to be holy and we're made to be creative because God is holy and God is creative. We can prize both. But we, are, we how we create culture is very different from how uh, non-Christians create culture. We are, we are made to create culture that is born of our weakness that points to the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. It all points to Him somehow. In our weakness, we look to the strength of God that we might, that it might become perfect in us. And so, the, the culture we create is very different. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we create has to be the gospel and about Jesus. T-Bone Burnett, I think, made a very good observation. He said, you can sing about the light, or you can sing about what you see because of the light. Okay? It doesn't have to be the songs we write and the books we write and the, the, the movies that Christians produce don't have to be you know, the gospel message. It doesn't have to be a Billy Graham film. Okay, uh, it definitely doesn't have to be one of those, you know, apocalyptic things that terrorize people into faith. Definitely not one of those. Um, they don't have to be sappy. But they're an honest look at the world and at our weakness and a longing for something greater that only Jesus can provide. And so we can and we should be creative people. We can write, we can draw, we can think, we can sing. But it's not just about that. Remember, culture is not just about works of art, loosely divine, but it's about how we live, it's how we play, it's all of these things. And so I want to say that each family creates a subculture. Each of you has created a subculture in your family, for good or bad. How do you know what your subculture is? I don't know, in some ways, ask someone to walk into your house and what do you see? If you walk into our home, I, I, I did this. What do we see? If someone walks into my house, what do they see? What they see is an emphasis on people. There are pictures of family and friends upon our walls. Some of it vacation, some of it mission trips. People are important. What do they see? They see books. Lots of books. What else do they see? They see hospitality. As people flow in and out of our house and enjoy meals with us and spend time with us, what do they see? Music. 
they go into my office, they'll see this, all these CDs, and, and sometimes we actually play them sometimes. Um, while people are there, they might hear the music. What else do they see? Adoptive love. They see a little boy who doesn't look like mommy and daddy. The gospel. Yeah, they see the Red Sox. But they see love. They see people. They see the gospel. And so as godly people, what we, we kind of do is we, we, we can sometimes adapt. Not, not only do we abandon some practices and we adopt others, but we have to sometimes adapt cultural practices to reflect our worldview because they have tended to be corrupted by other worldviews. And so, yeah, we paint, we draw, but we also love and we, and we show hospitality and we read and we listen in ways that reveal the gospel story. So culture is not a black and white issue. Scripture affirms the reality of common grace. That God provides good things for people despite their rebellion. That corrupt people twist the benefits of common grace, but that we as Christians can change culture by creating culture that is influenced by the saving grace we have received. And so what happens is we almost create a parallel culture. That Augustine book. City of man, city of God. Growing up together, just like the line of Cain and the line of Seth. But the, cre- the culture we create is born of weakness that relies upon the saving grace of our God. Let's pray. Whew, Father, um, I'm tired just from saying that, and I'm sure they're tired from hearing it. And yet there are things that we need to grapple with and wrestle with. We confess that we are often people who are motivated by pride, who are people, we are people unwilling to boast in our weakness, unwilling to rely upon you and your all-sufficient grace. And I ask that you would change us, that instead of raging against the curse and corruption, we would begin to look to you for the hope and comfort that you will provide through your son Jesus. And that we might be gently calling those around us to forsake their their pseudo-strength, for it is no strength at all, and to call upon you in weakness and humility. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the second Adam, who though he died upon the cross, has become the life-giving spirit through whom you have chosen to bless all who who are united with him. Amen.